This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. We'll be looking today at the middle section of this chapter. We'll be looking at Acts 4, verses 5 through 35. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. When they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we are this day judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone." Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded to them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over forty years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed." Being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. 
And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would ready our hearts to receive it, that we would see and know and be confident that there is power in Jesus' name. And I pray that because of the power that is in his name that does not belong to any others, that we would be faithful to serve him, faithful to speak his truth, to declare his name even in difficult places. And I pray that you would strengthen and help your church in this endeavor. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What would you be willing to go to jail for? I would imagine that being the group of upright and law-abiding people that you are, you don't have to think about that question very much. I have only been to jail on school field trips or to visit others who have got themselves in trouble, so it's not even really something I've thought about too much. In general, you should never have to think about going to jail or being afoul of the authorities unless you do something wrong. Of course, history is littered with all sorts of stories of tyranny and oppression and persecution by governments of people who were really just doing the right thing. And it's not even a historic problem. We see it more even in our day and around the world and even in our country. We can think of all the martyrs of the church throughout the ages, others who uh, were imprisoned and persecuted and uh, faced even death for the sake of Christ. America was founded and settled largely because of people's desire to worship God, the Christian God, the God of the Bible and not others, freely and apart from political persecution. But again, we start to see things creeping up in our day that start to raise these kinds of questions. A few years ago, we had the pandemic and we would hear stories of how churches in some places were being raided, pastors were being arrested, uh, there was all kinds of uh, problems and threats and attacks on Christ's church in that time. In the nation of Canada, there's been false reports that have been spread about Christian schools and how they had mass graves. And this has reported or resulted in several churches being uh, vandalized or burned down. Just a couple of weeks ago, a group of uh, protesters were trying to protest against an abortion clinic. They were convicted of felonies for their part in that work to try to uh, defend the youngest and most vulnerable image bearers of God. This, in America, uh, 
and this very recently. I bring these things up, not to scare you, but if you haven't thought about what you might be willing to go to jail for when your loyalties to God conflict with the loyalties of our age, it might be time to start thinking about it because we're not as far away as we often like to think. And today we learn, as we continue our study in the book of Acts, that the persecution of God's people at the hand of unrighteous rulers of men is not a new problem. It can be traced to the earliest days of the church. Last time we saw Peter and John miraculously heal a man who was crippled from birth. And it became a catalyst for gospel proclamation that God used for the salvation of thousands of souls. It did, though, have an unintended consequence. Peter and John were arrested by the temple guard who were under the particular influence of the Sadducees. They didn't like that Peter was preaching about the resurrection. So they were arrested and they were thrown into jail, spent a night there, and now were facing a trial. And so we continue today in chapter 4 after Peter and John's arrest and the mass conversion that came in light of Peter's preaching. How do the authorities respond to what has happened? And then how does Christ's church respond to that response? We'll look at this text this morning in four points. First, we see power in verses 5 through 12. The rulers want to know by what power and by what authority Peter and John have done what they have done. And then after this, there is a pronouncement in verses 13 through 22. After hearing the case, the council hands down an evil and iniquitous and blasphemous decree. But then third, we see the church answer with prayer in verses 23 through 31. And the church prays in a certain way for certain things. And then fourth and finally, we see perseverance. In verses 32 through 35, the church will continue in its God-given mission, even if in defiance of these civil authorities. So power, pronouncement, prayer, and perseverance, those are our points for today. So first we will look at power in verses 5 through 12. After their night in jail, Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin. You might remember the Sanhedrin from our series in John last year in the evenings. They were the ruling council of the Jews. This was the very same Sanhedrin who had plotted to kill Jesus and carried it out. So this right away tells us the stakes. These men had killed before to try to stop the word and work of Christ, and they would be more than happy to do it again. It wasn't just like Peter and John were going to traffic court for their parking tickets. This was a court that hated Jesus, and its decisions could carry life or death implications. We even see some familiar names on this council. We see Annas, or Ananias, who was the former high priest, but still highly regarded among the people. And then his son-in-law, Caiaphas, the current high priest, these two had held trials for Jesus, corrupt kangaroo trials, where they weren't the least bit interested in hearing the truth or 
working justice. They were out to get Jesus, and they did. And it is this very same council that Peter and John are brought before. Once the council is seated, they get to the business at hand. Now remember from last time that the charges against Peter and John would have been twofold. There was a charge of doctrine, and there was a charge of authority. The doctrinal charge would have concerned this preaching of the resurrection from the dead. This is what made the Sadducees mad and why they went and fetched the temple guard. But this charge was probably not going to win on the Sanhedrin because they were a mixed group. The Sadducees would have been part of it, but it also would have consisted of Pharisees and other members of other schools of Jewish thought. So once this trial comes, the doctrinal charge is largely set aside, and instead the focus is on the charge of authority. They are charged with unauthorizedly teaching the people without proper authority, without proper warrant to do so. We see this as the council asks its first question in verse 7. By what power or by what name have you done this? Now, as again, as we saw before in John, the Sanhedrin and the people on it were not particularly concerned with actually teaching people the truth of God's word and leading them in proper worship, even though this should have been their job. They were obsessed over traditions, over the teachings of men, and their own power to impose and enforce such teachings. First century Judaism was deeply divided among the various schools, the various sects, the various rabbis, each with their own commentaries and traditions and practices and ideas about what Judaism should have been. It was a very deep doctrinal and political struggle that really had very little to do with Scripture or the power of God. You had the Pharisees over in one corner with all their distinctives, and their teachings, then the Sadducees on another side with theirs. You had another group called the Essenes. They lived out in the desert in communes. They had their beliefs and their distinctives. And then all the other groups, all the other rabbis, all the other different schools of Judaism, all fighting with each other and infighting among themselves for control, for influence, for power over God's people. But when Jesus came... He challenged this perversion and corruption of religion. He confronted it. He threatened it. He brought real power from God against the pretended power of these men. This was why they hated Jesus and killed him. Now perhaps the Sanhedrin, since they had carried out their murderous plot against Jesus, they thought their Jesus problem was over. But as they now learn in Acts 4, that is not the case. Now we also read in verse 8 that as Peter begins to speak, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit empowers Peter in a specific way to say what he is about to say to this council. Just as Jesus challenged the Sanhedrin's pretended power with the real power of God, Peter challenges the pretended power of the council by the real power of God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in him. And so when Peter begins to speak, he first points out the absurdity of the charge on which they have been brought. 
He says, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, and that was essentially the offense. They had healed a crippled man and they had told people how and why it happened. It is ridiculous that this was a jailable and triable offense. Of course, that shows just how ridiculous the enemies of God often are. Well, did the psalmist write that the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? In Psalm 2, we'll hear from that again later in this chapter. Many have this idea, this misplaced idea, that unbelievers are just nice, reasonable people who need a little more of the right information, and then they'll embrace Christ. That's not really how it works. That's not really what the Scripture says about them. They are dead in their sins and trespasses. They are enemies and haters of God. In fact, they are so much so that an unquestionable good deed like the healing of this man was being regarded and treated as evil and being prosecuted by corrupt authorities. But since the council is most interested in the name and in the authority, Peter will answer their question. He continues, he says, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So that's the name, that's the power, that's the authority. They didn't act in the name of any of the sanctioned rabbinical schools. They acted in the name of Jesus. But Peter doesn't stop with just naming Jesus. He continues on and he does something that we've now seen from him a few times before. He directly accuses the Sanhedrin in their role in the persecution and killing of Jesus. They're supposed to be putting him on trial, but they find themselves on trial instead. For Peter says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and then he adds, whom you crucified. This is what spirit-empowered boldness does. The night that Jesus was on trial before that same council, Peter was too much of a coward to even acknowledge knowing him. He was too afraid of what the Sanhedrin and their people might do. But it is quite a different story now. Not only is Peter openly and publicly proclaiming Jesus, but he's doing it right to the faces of the very men that condemned Jesus to death. But Peter doesn't stop with accusing them. As before, he tells the council that God raised Jesus from the dead. It's unclear at this point what or how much the Sanhedrin would have known about Jesus' resurrection, but now Peter is making it quite clear that they do know. And it is in Jesus' name that this man was healed. Now, that's pretty confrontational what Peter is saying and who he's saying it to. But he's not done. Peter, again, as we have often seen, turns to the Scriptures, he turns to the Old Testament, he turns to the Word of God that this council of all people should have known, and he uses it to describe what's happening. He goes to Psalm 118, verses 22. He says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So he says that these leaders of the Jews were the builders. 
the very group that had rejected and persecuted and killed Jesus. Now, a cornerstone, I think I've talked about this before, but back then a cornerstone was the most important part of a building. It was the stone placed first, and it would have decided what direction your walls go. If your cornerstone's not right, your whole building's going to be wrong. So these Jewish leaders, they thought themselves worshipers of God and the teachers of the people, the ones nearest and closest to God. They had their temple. They had their doctrines. They had their Abrahamic lineage. But they missed the most important thing. They rejected the cornerstone. They rejected the foundation. They rejected their very God who had come into their midst. Not only was the name of Jesus that the Sanhedrin despised, powerful to heal the man in the temple, it is the only name powerful to save. For Peter goes one step further still, declaring in verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So not only is Jesus powerful and his name powerful. Not only was Jesus teaching true, not only was Jesus the rejected cornerstone, but there is no salvation apart from Jesus. This would be the most offensive statement to these Jewish leaders who thought themselves right with God by their Judaism. And it's one of the most offensive statements to make in our world today. It's horribly offensive to people who want to be saved by their own power and their own works. It's horribly offensive to those who would be saved by false gods. It's horribly offensive to those who don't think that they need to be saved at all. But Peter has confronted this pretended power of the council with the true power of God in the name of Jesus Christ. So how is the council going to take this? How will they respond? After power, we come to pronouncements in verses 13 through 22. We see that the council marvels. They're not really sure what to make of the boldness of Peter and John, these uneducated and untrained men they didn't go to the right schools. They didn't belong to the right Jewish groups, the right clubs. They didn't have the right degrees. But they had the truth. They had the name of Jesus. They had the power of God's Holy Spirit with them and in them. And that's what really mattered. Now, the council also had a problem of evidence. This man that Peter and John had healed, he was standing there with them. How could they explain that away? They certainly would have liked to, but it was going to be a tall order. How do you have this man? He's over 40 years old. He's been crippled his whole life, and suddenly he's walking and leaping and praising God. So the council sends Peter and John away, and they turn to their deliberations. They are forced to acknowledge that this miracle happened. They can't deny it. They likely hate it. They're probably seething about it, but it's a problem they can't readily solve. 
So the best solution that they can come up with, since they can't really deal with this problem they have of the power of Jesus' name, they're just going to ban talking about it. Now, how often do we see similar attacks against the truth in our day? If people cannot answer and deal with the truth of Christ and the truth of God's word, they'll just find some way to formally or informally ban it or to make it unacceptable to talk about it. People will start arguing about the tone and procedure that people use when they can't answer content and they can't answer truth. When we try to speak about who God is and what he has done and what he has said about us and the world he gave us, we can be often shouted down as bigots and ignorant and backwards and intolerant. In fact, there's a lot of places in the world now, places like schools and governments and the like that are essentially walled off. You you can't bring Jesus' name into those places. If you do, you're going to be in trouble. But friends, this is Jesus' world. And any who would seek to keep him out of any of it are squatters and trespassers. So how do these squatters and trespassers on the council deal with Peter and John? They bring them back in and they read this evil decree that they are not to speak or teach in Jesus' name anymore. But how do Peter and John answer? Well, they know they are captive to a higher authority. They reject the claims of authority by the council because it contradicts God's authority which is sovereign over all. God has commanded them and empowered them to preach Christ, and they are going to preach Christ even if the leaders of men say no. They must listen to God, not to men. Well, the council still tries. They continue to threaten them, but on this occasion, at least they can do no more. They likely wanted to, But this miracle was too big of a problem for them to solve. It was a transparently good thing. Everyone knew about it. And to persecute those who did it would betray the council's own corruption and powerlessness to the crowd. So they threatened Peter and John some more, but they had to release them. But now that they're freed, what do Peter and John do? And what does the rest of the church do? This brings us to our third point, prayer in verses 23 through 31. So Peter and John return to the other disciples to report what has happened. And how does the church respond? We don't see any hesitation. We don't see any deliberation. We don't see any desire on the part of anyone to acquiesce to the unjust command of the council. Instead, they turn to prayer. First, they confess and acknowledge God's sovereignty, that he is creator, the maker of all things, and thus the ruler of all things. And then they quote the very verses from Psalm 2 that I mentioned earlier about how the nations raged and the people's plot in vain, how kings conspire against the Lord and against Christ. When rulers decree iniquitous decrees against God and his word, they become these wicked rulers of Psalm 2. 
That is exactly what these authorities in Jerusalem were when they persecute and crucify Jesus. Note even as this prayer continues in verse 27 and onward, they name Herod, they name Pontius Pilate, they certainly played their roles, but then they also name the people, both Jews and Gentiles alike. Everyone did their part in persecuting and killing Jesus. But even though these people did evil, even though they plotted against and executed an innocent man, this was according to God's sovereign will. It was God's will for Christ to suffer. It was determined by God's purposes. In verse 28, we see it there. Even if using the evil actions of evil men. But in praying this, the disciples are acknowledging that even if they must face evil and persecution and even death, they do so according to God's will. And so they will remain steadfast in the face of it. And this is what they pray starting in verse 29. They ask God to grant them boldness to continue to speak his word despite the threats. And also that they may continue to do signs and wonders in Jesus' name. So they have no interest in burying Jesus' name as they have been told to do. They don't even ask to be delivered from the persecution. They don't ask for the persecution to stop. Rather, they ask for the boldness and courage and power to obey God and preach Christ in the midst of the persecution. But they're not going anywhere. The laws and decrees of men aren't going to stop them. Persecution won't stop them. We'll see later that even death won't stop them. They are going to stay and they are going to preach Christ. Preaching Christ takes precedence over all. It is his world and the squatters and trespassers can't have it. So the disciples ask God for this boldness and they receive it immediately. Verse 31, after they had prayed, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The place they were in was shaken. It was a sign from on high that God had heard them, and then they spoke the word of God with boldness. They're not going to be delivered out of their trial and persecution, but they're going to persist. They're going to continue in the work that God has given them. And so it is with that in mind that we come to our final point, perseverance, in verses 32 through 35. We read in verse 32 that the multitude of those who had believed, the 5,000 plus who had joined the church at Jerusalem, were of one heart and one soul. They were unified. They were in agreement. They were working together, led by the Word and the Spirit. And they continued in something we saw before. They shared their possessions. They helped one another. Now let me just say again, this is not societal communism. For one thing, it's limited to the church. It's the sharing and generosity of Christians between each other. They helped each other in their need and poverty and lack, which was likely increasing as this persecution was increasing. This probably isn't something we think about much because we haven't had to deal with much persecution in our lives and in our times, but... As Christians, when persecution breaks out, Christians need to think about how they can be ready to help each other and to provide for each other in those times. What happens when, as we're increasingly seeing in our world, 
Faithfulness to Christ starts costing people their jobs, their livelihoods, their property, and even their freedom. What can we do as God's people to be ready for this and to help one another when times like this come? Can we provide food and housing and jobs and lawyers and other needs so that our brothers and sisters who are suffering loss for the sake of Christ can be helped and provided for in those times? Those are questions that we are going to have to think about more going forward when the future is uncertain and the church is increasingly under attack. So today we have seen opposition to the church and how the church responds to it. The church's first and foremost obligation is to be faithful to God's word and see that Christ is proclaimed whatever anyone else has to say or do about it. Do we have the boldness to do that? Do we have the boldness to be that kind of church? If we don't, the prescription is also here. We can and we should pray that the Holy Spirit would give us the boldness we lack so that we might do what we have been called to do, that we might proclaim Christ, that we might be faithful to His Word, that we might be the church that He has set us up to be. But perhaps you hear this today, and it all seems strange and foreign to you. What, what could possibly be worth such defiance and the trouble that it causes? Well, the answer is this. The things of this world, the temporary and temporal, they fade in the sight of the eternal. Peter said it, there's no other name given under heaven by which we may be saved. We are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, and apart from the salvation that comes in Jesus' name, we will be justly condemned for our sins and banished to hell for all eternity. But Jesus Christ lived the sinless life we could not, and he died the death we deserve. And those who would repent of their sins and believe in his name receive forgiveness and everlasting life in his name. And that's the power of Jesus' name. And it is in his name that we speak. It is in his name that we act. It is in his name that we pray. It is in His name that we resist the forces of evil and the raging nations and the vainly plotting kings of the world that come against His name. Because it is in Jesus' name and in Jesus' name alone that we or anyone else may be saved. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us, who gave himself for us. We thank you that you have revealed to us the power of his name, the power of salvation, that you have called out of this present evil age a people for his name to worship his name. I pray that we would be faithful as your church to see that Jesus' name continues to be proclaimed, that all may be brought in that you have called from the foundations of the earth. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us this boldness where we lack it to stand against the opposition to Jesus' name, to proclaim it boldly 
to defy those who would stand against it, even if we must face suffering and trial and persecution as a result. I pray that you would help and comfort and strengthen your people in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.